Again, welcome to Trinity Church. We are so thankful that you are able to join with us this morning. If you're visiting with us, we would love to meet you, as Jeremy's already said. We're glad that you're here. And for those members of Trinity Church, those who are gathering with us weekly, it is a privilege and a joy to worship with you and share uh, in this uh, wonderful morning, the celebration that is Resurrection Morning. This morning for a text, I have chosen an unusual text, perhaps, uh, in the estimation of some, but it is a fitting text for Resurrection Morning. We're looking at Ezekiel chapter 37 this morning. If you would join me in standing as you find Ezekiel 37. If you do not have a Bible this morning, if you need a Bible, we have Bibles uh, for you over on our welcome table. Uh, Please avail yourself. You can have that Bible if you want to keep it. You can have it. If you need a Bible, they're over there on the welcome table for you. Ezekiel 37 is where we are this morning. And I'm going to read verse 1. 14, Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. And you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold a rattling, And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Where do you go when you like to think? Where do you go when you like to be alone and think? Now, some of you might say, to be alone, time to think. If I have minutes to myself, if I even 10 or 15 minutes to myself, I'm not going to waste my time thinking, I'm going to take a nap. 
to rest. I'm tired. It's fair enough. Many of us are busy. Many of us don't have much time to think, to be by ourselves. But most of us do have moments. We do have opportunity from time to time, maybe while we're driving or mowing the lawn or fishing or whatever it is that we do. Many of us have moments where we like to tune out life and think about those things which are deep inside of us. Do you ever ever stop and just think and ask yourself questions about those things that are deep inside of you? I think that's one of the problems with our society today is that no one ever stops and actually thinks deeply. We just go from one entertainment to another, drowning out the noise really of our own hearts. Where do you like to go to think? And when you do have that time, what is it that you think about? Many of us have opportunities to think, and when we do, we ask ourselves questions and have debates that we aren't able to have or have the opportunity to have in other places. For me, it's when I'm driving. If you could see me when I am driving, it would be comical. I preach my best sermons when I'm driving. I like to have conversations with myself. I talk to myself a lot. When we have those opportunities to think, to meditate, to focus, there's one question that I believe all of us at some point in time ask or ponder. At some point, all of us ask this question. Now, we may not ask it the same way. We may not phrase it the same way, but... We all have this nagging question in our minds and hearts that we ask at some point, and it goes something like this What in the world is wrong with people? What in the world is wrong with our world? Maybe it's after you hear of a tragedy. A couple of weeks ago, we heard of another shooting that took place at a school where nine-year-old children were killed. And at those times, maybe while you're driving, you go, what in the world is wrong with us? Maybe it's after a fight with your spouse or a long day of parenting. Whatever it is that causes you to ask that question, I think all of us can agree on this one reality. The world is one messed up place. Or or maybe you're here this morning and you're pretty satisfied with the way the world is. I don't think that's any of us. We can all agree that the world doesn't work the way that we all want it to, and that it is one messed up place. We have ample evidence of this reality by looking at our world globally, the wars and the fighting and the hunger, starvation, genocide. We have ample evidence looking at our own country. Does anyone think that our country is working well? Does anyone think that our country has ever worked well? I've read a lot of history in my life. Maybe not as much as you, but I've read enough to know that our country has never worked well. Maybe somebody somewhere thinks it does, but we have ample evidence that something is horribly wrong. We have ample evidence just looking at our own state. We have ample evidence looking at our own city. What goes on in the city of Spokane and Spokane Valley. 
We have ample evidence of something horribly wrong just looking at our own workplace. Our coworkers, those people that we relate to most often at our work. We have ample evidence even looking down our own street at our neighbors. The situations we see on the street where we live and Sure enough, we have ample evidence when we look inside our own homes, at our own marriages, at our own parenting, at our own children. I think we can all agree that mankind has a problem. Now, where we will begin to disagree is on the nature of that problem, or the definition of that problem, or the source of that problem. We can all agree, I think, that mankind has a serious problem. But where we will begin disagreeing is on where that problem comes from, or on the nature of that problem, the definition of that problem, what is the source of that problem, and furthermore, how extensive the problem is. Is it the problem of just a few? It's just really the the few bad people that mess up this world. Maybe you think it's just a few people that have a problem. If we could just get rid of those few people, then everything would be good. But like I just said, we would have to start with our own house, wouldn't we? Maybe, maybe it's half the people. Maybe there's, you know, half the world is good and the other half is bad. Maybe it's even a majority of the people. There's a few of us that are good. I think this is, I think this is the view of a lot of people. You know, most of the people in this world are not, not good, but there's some of us. There's some of us that are good. We just huddle up together, all of us good people, and endure the storm. Or... Or is it everybody that has a problem? How you might answer these questions will determine the answer to the ultimate question, and that is, how do we fix it? How do we solve it? How do we remedy the problem? You see, there's a lot of people who want to offer remedies to the problem, but they haven't addressed the source of the problem, truly. Well, it's of no surprise, I hope to you, that I believe this morning, I believe as I stand here today, that the Bible has the answer to all of those questions. The Bible has the answer to all of those questions. What may be a little bit surprising It's not that I believe the Bible has the answer to those questions. What may be a little bit surprising is the place I've chosen as a text this morning to get us there. Ezekiel 37. If you're new to the Bible, or maybe you've been a believer for a long time, the book of Ezekiel is an odd book. It's an interesting book. A book full of all sorts of unsettling imagery. And this passage, Ezekiel 37, is a good good example of that. Did you catch what was going on in this passage? The prophet Ezekiel, he, he is a priest to Israel. He serves as a priest to Israel when they are taken captive. And God chooses him to be his spokesman. Ezekiel is a priest turned prophet. And he is chosen by God to be a spokesman to God's people, Israel. And as he is prophesying or speaking to Israel, God takes him and shows him a valley full of bones. Did you catch that? A valley full of bones. Now imagine that. Some of you have movies that you've watched where similar scenes have played out. They go to a valley, and the entire valley is full of bones. Bones that have been laying in that valley for a long time. Full of very dry bones. 
life has left these people a long time ago. Their corpses have rotted. Their bones have been parched, dried, crumbling bones. It's a weird, weird scene. Ezekiel's message to Israel, God chooses Ezekiel to deliver a message to his people, Israel, and it is mostly a message of destruction and sadness. It's a message where God tells his people that he is withdrawing his presence from them. He is leaving them. He's abandoning them because of their sin, because of their unfaithfulness. Yet, while the judgment upon Israel is severe, the book of Ezekiel also contains a message of profound hope and promise. God is planning something for Israel's future, which will allow him to return to them and be their God once again and live in their midst as he intends to. He will return to them and they will be his people without sin forever. Ezekiel 37, which we just looked at, is actually a message of this hope. And this hope centers on the promise, I hope you saw it there, the promise of resurrection. It says, I will take you from your graves And I will breathe life into you, and you will live. Here is the summary of the point of this text. In Ezekiel 37, God promises his people that by means of resurrection, he will make a new humanity. Listen to that. God is promising Israel... That by means of resurrection, he will make a new humanity that will be free of sin and death. And that he will live in their presence forever. By means of resurrection, God will make a new humanity that will live in his presence forever. I'd like for you to first of all see this morning the need... Here in Ezekiel 37, the need for resurrection. The need for resurrection. If there ever was a society well equipped to live and do well, if there was ever a society equipped to live well, it was Israel. God had especially chosen them and placed his favor upon them, they were his people. God's people. He delivered them miraculously from Egypt. He gave them a blessed land to live in. And God gave his people, Israel, instruction. That's right. God actually spoke to them and gave them instruction. Have you ever thought it would be really nice if God would just speak to me? God did that. He spoke to Israel and he gave them instruction. He told them how he wanted them to live. God told them exactly how they were to live. And then, he gave them incentive to live this way. You parents out there will understand incentive when you try to get your children to do what you want them to do. Some people give positive incentive, reward, right? If you obey me, then, you know how many times I've been at a a restaurant or whatever, If you will just eat your food, I will give you some ice cream, right? And this is positive incentive. We think that will work. Or negative incentive. If you don't eat your food, I'm telling you what, I'm going to take you outside and you, you know, negative incentive. God gave them how he wanted them to live and then he gave them the most powerful positive incentive and negative incentive. He said, if you will do what I've told you, if you will obey my rules and my statutes and my commandments, I will bless you in a way that no other nation's ever been blessed. 
I'm going to take all sin or all death away from you. I'm going to take all, all disappointment away from you. I'm going to make sure that you never lose a battle in war. I'm going to make sure that you have everything you want. It will be a land flowing with milk and honey, you've heard. And he also gave them negative incentive. He said, if you don't obey, I'm going to pour upon you all the curses that you could possibly imagine. He gave them incentive If any society had a chance to live well, if any society had a chance, it was Israel. Yet, here we are in Ezekiel 37. And God's people are pictured here as a valley of dry bones. They are pictured as people that are dead. How did we get there? How did Israel go from being the society that had the best opportunity to succeed to being a valley full of dry bones? How did they get there? Well, for all of the grace and mercy and provision and instruction that Israel had received, they found themselves unable to keep the greatest commandment. You know what the greatest commandment is? You should love God. And for all of the incentives that God gave them and all the mercy and grace and provision he afforded them, they could not love God. They were unmotivated then to serve God. They were uninterested in obeying God. Have you, have you tried that with your children when you sit at the table instead of the incentives? If you love me, you'll eat your food. What, what do you think the result of that would be? These children that talk about how much they love you. Do you think appealing to their love for you would be enough? No. No, because their will, their will and desires are bent against yours. And this was Israel. They were uninterested in obeying God. They were unable to live righteously before God. And they were unable to live rightly with one another. Not only were they unable to love God and love others, we find that Israel had a love for idols, for false gods. They went after gods who couldn't speak. They went after gods who couldn't see. They went after gods who couldn't hear. They went after false gods. And this is connected to Israel's love for wealth, for prosperity, their love for sexual immorality, their love of sin. You see, God has made every man and woman a being, beings that love and have affections, desires. And if their love and affection did not go to God, it would go somewhere. Israel had a love and a desire for wrong, for sin, and a hatred and malice toward others. Not only were they unable to keep God's instruction, they found that instruction, that gracious instruction from God, they found it oppressive and restricting They loved sin and wickedness. Even though it was clear that their love for sin would destroy them. Think about that for a moment. They loved sin even though they knew it was clear that their love for sin and wickedness would destroy them and lead to horrific consequences. Their sin would lead to death. But Israel is not alone in this inability and in their love for wickedness, are they? In fact, Israel serves as a testimony for all of mankind. If Israel, who was the best equipped to live well under God's gracious rule, If Israel, who was best equipped to live well, could not do so, then what does that say about us? What does that say about you and me? 
If Israel, who had every advantage to live righteously before God and to love him, if they could not because of their love for sin, then what does that say about you and me? And here's what I want you to understand about Ezekiel 37 and the Valley of Dry Bones. The Valley of Dry Bones does not just picture Israel. The Valley of Dry Bones pictures all of us. The Valley of Dry Bones pictures all of us. Their example should serve to disabuse any of us of the notion that we are good This is also the testimony of the New Testament. Very quickly, a couple of passages I want you to hear. Ephesians 2 starts off this way. Listen to these words. Ephesians chapter 2 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Very simply, Ephesians 2 tells us who we are. We live following the course of this world, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And if you will stop and think for a moment, you will realize this is true about yourself. Titus 3 corroborates this. Another letter written by the Apostle Paul, Titus 3, he says, We ourselves, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Titus 3 describes the problem. This is who we are. This is why the world is one messed up place. Now, we can all agree that there's a problem in the world. Again, we see it evidenced on a global scale all the way down to our own homes. However, however, the interesting thing is, and I think this is true. I think this is true. I know it's true of me. I can see out there all of the problems of the world. I can see, even in my home, the problems that exist. Where I fail to see a problem is right here in my own heart. Have you noticed that? Some people say that our world doesn't like to talk about sin. Oh no, our world loves to talk about sin. It's just always the sin of other people. And they may not call it sin. We may call it injustice. We may call it foolishness. We may call it selfishness. We may see it as anger or perversion or whatever, but we see it very clearly. But we see it primarily and only in other people. We're really good at saying things like, well, that's not fair. When you say that's not fair, what are you saying? That there's a standard of right. You're calling something wrong. You're saying that's sin. That's injustice. You see, you see it in other people. Maybe you say, well, he's not a good guy. I can't trust that guy. Or she's a liar. You see, we, we see sin really easily in other people. Our workplaces spend a lot of time gossiping about the failures and sins of other people. But we never accurately see ourselves. You'll have a lot of people that will say about churches, well, those churches are just full of hypocrites. Have, they ever, have you ever stopped and thought about what it takes for you to make that statement? That church is just full of hypocrites. Well, is there a standard of right somewhere? 
See, you know that hypocrisy is wrong. You have a standard by which you measure it. But you, you refuse to turn that standard upon yourself. And examine your own motives. We, we are so quick to give ourselves a pass. I'm a pretty good guy. I don't really mean any harm. I try my best. As soon as the finger is pointed at us, we do everything in our power to justify or to lessen our guilt. But I want you to know that Ezekiel 37 is not just a picture for Israel. It's a picture of us. It's you and me, and the rest of mankind. All of humanity is pictured in the valley of dry bones. All of humanity is there. Our love for sin and its consequences is pictured there. We know our sin has horrific consequences, and yet we love it too much to give it up. And our sin results in death. Our spiritual state of sin brings about upon our lives death, physical death, We need resurrection. We need a completely new life. And I want you to understand this as well. This need that we have is impossible. It's impossible to be accomplished by man. Here in verse 3, Ezekiel 37 verse 3, we see the impossibility of this resurrection. The resurrection mankind needs is impossible. The Lord says to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? God calls Ezekiel the son of man, literally son of Adam. Son of Adam, can these bones live? Emphasizing the humanity of Ezekiel. By extension, emphasizing his limitedness. Son of man who is limited in knowledge and ability and in every other way, can these bones come back to life? And Ezekiel answers from the human perspective, right? The human perspective is to say, no, no, they cannot live. It's impossible for them to live again. But here he says, Lord, only you know. Only you know the answer to that question. All life is gone and there is no hope. Oh, Lord God, Only you know. From a man's perspective, it's hopeless. But Ezekiel defers to God, a God who alone can do the impossible. The need for new life that each of us has is beyond our ability. Nothing we can do can make us alive. Nothing we can do can change the truth about who we are. But I want you to see the second point here is that in this text, not only do we see the need for resurrection, we see the promise of resurrection. We see in this passage the need for resurrection and its impossibility, but we also see that God makes a promise. Let me read it for you again. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will, de- I will do it, declares the Lord. Here in Ezekiel 37, God promises that his people will live again. He promises to do the impossible. He will bring them back to life and not their old life. He will bring them back to life and it won't be like their old life. No, he will resurrect them to a new life where they will be given God's own spirit. The problem of sin 
the problem of our inclination towards evil, our inclination towards wickedness, he will raise them again and he will put in them his spirit which will be inclined to righteousness and holiness. He won't raise them to their old life, but a new life. He will raise them to a new life and he will put his spirit in them. He will give them a new nature, a new disposition towards God. And all of this, he stakes on his word. He says, I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. In fact, it is his word. It is his word that brings Israel back to life. It is his word that causes life from the dead. I want you to take Ezekiel 37. I didn't read this a minute ago, but I want you to look down at verse 23. I want you to see the results of this resurrection that he will accomplish for his people. Look down at verse 23. Look down at verse 23 in Ezekiel 37. He goes on. He says, They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them. Now, if you know anything about the history, David's been dead a long time when this passage is written. But he says, my servant David will be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Look at this. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. I want want you to hear very quick a summary of the, the promises here of resurrection What are the results of this promised resurrection? What will it accomplish? Three things very quickly. First, it will give to his people new life. The resurrection will result in new life. We call that regeneration. They will be regenerated. When Jesus talks to Nicodemus in John 3, he calls this being born again. You will be born anew. You will be given new life. You will be regenerated. He will cleanse them from their defilement and from their sinful inclinations and they will then walk in obedience. They will walk in obedience to him who is their God. He will give them new life. Second of all, he will give them a new king. A new king. He will give them a new king from the line of David and this king will lead them and be their shepherd forever. See, the leaders of God's people had failed them The leaders of God's people, Israel, had failed them and led them into sin and wickedness. They will be given a new leader, a new leader who will be their king and lead them in righteousness. And they will be given a new covenant, a new covenant. He calls here an everlasting covenant of peace. There will be a new relationship with God, a new covenant. The old covenant of laws that could not be kept will be fulfilled And he will make a new covenant. The result of this new covenant will be that he will dwell with them as their God in their midst forevermore. His presence as God will be enjoyed by his people. Truly, this is our greatest need. To be able to dwell with God. To be able to be in the presence of God. So uh, you see a future resurrection here in Ezekiel 37. A future resurrection for God's people was the expectation of Ezekiel 37. A physical resurrection of God's people. Bringing forever spiritual renewal and transformation. This is what God has promised. And he has staked his name upon this promise. We see the need that humanity has for resurrection and we see God's promise here in this passage that he will accomplish this very resurrection. 
And that leads us then to discover how he has fulfilled this promise, the fulfillment of resurrection. Now you would have to be really trying to not pay attention this morning to fail in seeing where this is going. How has God accomplished and carried out this promise of resurrection? The Old Testament expectation was that God would act in order to save his people from death, from their sin. He would resurrect them. And how would he do this? How would he accomplish this? Well, almost 600 years after the prophecy of Ezekiel, 600 years later, a man named Jesus enters the story of God's people. This man, who is a man, but claims he is sent from God for the purpose of bringing in the kingdom that God had promised to Israel. He leads people to believe that he is the promised son king that we just heard about. Jesus is the promised son king who will return Israel back to God and fulfill the expectations of the prophets in Israel, including the expectations of Ezekiel. And this Jesus talks specifically about resurrection. Not only does he talk about resurrection, he says that he himself is the resurrection and the life. You remember when he says that? John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, one of his good friends, Lazarus, has died. And he hears about it and goes to comfort the sisters of Lazarus. Martha and Mary. And Martha comes out and says, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Listen to what Jesus says to Martha. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, listen to what Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on that last day. You see, Israelites had an expectation of resurrection. Jesus said to her, though, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He said to Martha. She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God who is coming into the world. Jesus was a man, 100% man. But he was also, at the same time, God, the Son of God, 100% God. This is how God will fulfill his promise to his people to raise them from the dead. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus says this as you probably know the story, but if you don't, let me fill in the rest of the story of Lazarus. Jesus says he is the resurrection and the life right before he does something truly impossible. He calls this woman's dead brother, Lazarus, back to life. Lazarus, come forth! And he comes back from the dead. Now, given the Old Testament expectation of resurrection, and given Jesus' statement about being the resurrection and the life, and given his power to actually bring people back from the dead, you would think, you would think that Israel would stand up and take notice of Jesus. Maybe this is the one we're waiting for, you think. But instead, the leaders of Israel in Jesus' day seek to kill him. This is the height of sinful blindness and hatred and sin. Ultimately, the leaders of Israel get their way and they crucify him. 
They crucify him. They kill the resurrection and the life, the Lord of life. But here's the thing about resurrection. Resurrection can only happen after death. Death must precede resurrection. The death that Jesus dies was not for his own sin. The death that Jesus dies is not for any wrong in him. No, he died for the sins of the people. He died the death of sinful man. Can I say, he went and became the valley of dry bones. He became death for us. And then God raised him up. God raised up Jesus from the dead. And in his resurrection, in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the promise of Ezekiel 37 is set into motion. The promise of resurrection for God's people now is set into motion through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The promises of Ezekiel 37 are coming to pass. His resurrection accomplishes new spiritual life, just as was promised. His resurrection accomplishes regeneration. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. By the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has accomplished regeneration. He has given new life to those that are his. Those who have looked to Christ for their need of resurrection have been given this new spiritual life. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6, listen. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Oh, what grace. And his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. His resurrection provides new life for his people. His resurrection vindicates Jesus in his righteousness and declares him to be this new king that was expected. Romans 1 tells us that. Paul, the apostle, servant of Christ Jesus, set apart for the gospel of God, listen to this, which God promised beforehand through his prophets. That's what we just read in Ezekiel 37. He he promised beforehand in his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. When When they killed Jesus, they thought he deserved to die. Someone who's crucified surely cannot be righteous. Oh no, his resurrection vindicates him in his righteousness. And it proves that he is indeed who he said he was. He is the son of God, the king that God has promised. His resurrection secures righteousness for those who believe in him. Listen to Romans 4.25. says, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised... 
from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Justification is a declaration of righteousness. Remember earlier I was talking about how we can see the problems out in the world, but we fail to see our own problems. We want to justify our own sin. We want to justify our own greed and our own selfishness and our own immorality. We want to justify all of that. You cannot justify yourselves. There is nothing that will remove your blame, your guilt, and your unrighteousness. But God has accomplished our justification. He has accomplished our justification in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You want to justify yourself? There is only one place to find justification. There is only one place to find true righteousness, and that is in the resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ. And all those who believe in him will be justified. His resurrection also is the first fruits of the harvest. The first fruits of the harvest of resurrection. In other words, his resurrection opens up the gate for the resurrection of his people. How is he going to raise his people from the dead? Jesus is the first fruits, he is the first of the harvest. He has opened the way. You see, his resurrection guarantees our own physical resurrection from death. Those who believe in Jesus by faith, we also will be physically resurrected. 1 Corinthians 15 promises us this. It says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or have died. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. His resurrection then defines the nature of our resurrection. We will be raised physically, listen to this, to immortal life. You ever want to be immortal? You ever want to beat death and live forever? Listen to what 1 Corinthians 15 says. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal man puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Or victory, O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. His resurrection defines the nature of our resurrection. We will be raised physically to immortal life, never to die again. And his resurrection promise us, promises us to bring us into the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 4.14, knowing this, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. The promises of Ezekiel 37 are fulfilled in Jesus. They are set into motion. The the question then is not what is our greatest need? We see very clearly what is our greatest need. Our greatest need is to be rid of our sin. Our greatest need is to be reconciled to God. That is our greatest need. That is the need of mankind. What is the need of mankind? It is resurrection. Freedom from their sin. Who has provided for this need? God has provided for this need through the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Really, the question for you this morning, have you believed upon the name of Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith for salvation, for resurrection in Jesus Have you seen that his death has been accomplished for your death? 
He has died for your sin. You deserve to die. I deserve to die. But he has died for sin. But he did not stay dead. He rose again and defeated sin and death. And your only hope, your only hope for salvation is in him, his death and resurrection. Would you believe upon him this morning? Would you turn to him as your only hope of salvation? For those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, simply want to say to you, we celebrate resurrection morning once a year, but truly every time we gather together, we're celebrating resurrection morning. Every time we gather together, that's what we're celebrating. The new life that he has given us, the promises that he is giving us in his resurrection. For those of you who've placed your faith in Christ, can I just exhort you in this simple way? Resurrection should be the way that you think about yourselves. I don't know what identity you hold on to that's really important to you, but if you have placed your faith in Christ, you have died with Christ and you have been raised again with Christ. His death and his resurrection defines you. His resurrection is how you should think and and consider yourself. You have been raised to new life. This is how we should see ourselves. This is how we should see our spiritual power, our ability to live free from sin. In our affection, set your mind on things above where Christ is, raised and seated. And what we love and what we care about, resurrection should define us in how we see ourselves and what we care about, and it should define us in our hope. We are not a people who fear death, we are not a people who fear the times. We are a people who have been raised with Christ, and our hope is in him. And it should impact the way we see one another. Because we have been identified with Christ together, we should live together as this new people raised to new life. As this society, this humanity that God is bringing into his presence. By means of resurrection, God has made a new humanity that he is bringing into his presence. And church, if you've placed your faith in Christ, that is you. Ezekiel 37 is for you. Let's live that way. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the life that has been accomplished in the resurrection of Jesus. Take these realities, plant them in our hearts. I pray, I I pray desperately for anyone here who has not placed their faith in your son, Jesus, for their salvation. They know their problem. I pray that you would open their eyes, give them the gift of repentance, that they would turn from their sin and their love for sin, and that they would turn by faith to Jesus, trusting in him and his death and resurrection to give them new life, victory over sin and death. You have promised that you would do this. I pray that you would do that for anyone here, everyone here, who has not placed their faith in Christ. And for your people, we pray 
that you would continue to transform us into this people that you have made through your son's death and resurrection, that we would live in such a way that the world would look and see the truth of who you are and the resurrection power that has been accomplished in the resurrection of Jesus. We pray all of this in your name for your sake. Amen.